We are delighted to have with us the Reverend Steve Light this evening, who is a friend of mine and of Jeff's. He was for a long while an intern at Holy Trinity in Tampa. A lot of our young people who go to USF uh, know Steve and have helped him in his ministry as the Lord has used him to plant a church in a portion of Tampa that is colloquially called Suitcase City because it's a very transient area. And it is a place in which it is difficult to minister in large measure because of that. And yet the Lord has planted his church there. And recently, uh, some of you who received the updates from Sojourner Presbyterian saw that uh, Steve was privileged to baptize their first convert. And it was a wonderful thing to see in a great photograph that was included. Steve, will you take a few moments to update us on your ministry and then open the word of the Lord to us. Thank you. Well, it is a great privilege to be here. I have so appreciated your church, your pastors, your elders through uh, the nearly six years I've been in Tampa and in this presbytery of southwest Florida. So it, it is just a delight to stand here in front of you and have the opportunity to open God's word to you. I am uh, joined tonight with my wife, who's towards the back there, Lauren, and also my, uh, my son, who's in the nursery. Lauren can wave, and you can all know she is. <laughs> I'll embarrass her thoroughly. Um, so we are just delighted to be here. As David mentioned, I have been engaged in the work of church planting, Sojourner Presbyterian Church, which began out of a Bible study in that area of town called Suitcase City, a very transient, impoverished area that sits right next to the University of South Florida, just on the western side. Uh, So some of you I know are familiar with that area from students over there, and we have so appreciated the the many students who have come from this church and are engaged in Sojourner in different ways. Um, The church took a while to find a place to meet and actually is located outside of Suitcase City, but within um, striking distance, so to speak. It's it's actually a a major crossroads of the city, if you're familiar over there with Fowler Avenue. We're just off of Fowler Avenue, which um, has the University of South Florida, 40,000 students, 15,000 faculty, three major hospitals right in that area, Bush Gardens. Temple Terrace has one of the fastest growing populations of Muslims in our nation. And uh, the area as a whole is uh, one of the most diverse portions of the city and and really a a ripe mission field in so many ways. We began our worship services, our public worship in October, which was a wonderful milestone uh, for us after... um, truly years of groundwork, and looking back, more than a decade of prayers for this work here, seeing the strategic value of it. So that was a, a joyful and uh, exciting occasion, beginning public worship at the beginning of October, and um, progressing from there, as David mentioned, our first baptism the other week, just such a, I, I can't express and communicate the joy of that morning. It was uh, truly from the Lord and just tasted of heaven. So, um, so many good things happening. We do covet your prayers. We are a very young church. There are a lot of students involved, a lot of young couples. Um, we just cry out to the Lord for growth and maturity. I am obviously a young pastor and uh, need your prayers as well uh, for wisdom and 
the Lord's blessing in these labors. So we thank you for your prayers for this work. Well, with that, let me turn to God's Word and ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, reading from his Gospel, verses 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you that were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah... When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. O gracious God, may your blessing be upon the hearing and preaching of your word. May our eyes, our eyes of faith, be lifted up to see and to know our Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I've entitled this sermon, Christ's Kingdom, the End of Racial Supremacy. Let me tell you why I address this topic tonight. Let me do it by way of an insight that Jesus gives us into the casting out of a demon. You probably remember the discussion in Luke 11. The demon is exercised. Jesus describes what happens. The demon leaves and wanders for a time, but finding no place to rest, it returns to where it came from and enters back in. But now it comes with seven demons more evil than itself. 
And Luke's account, if we were to look there, seems to be speaking of a literal demon and the individual person. And no doubt that's a, 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 an important detail. And, and, uh, and the usual application is that we must not only cast off evil, but bring in a new tenant to the home. Well, in Matthew 12, there's a parallel account where Jesus gives the same explanation, but finishes by saying, so also it will be with this evil generation. That's an interesting detail, isn't it? It's caught my attention in recent months. There's an application of this principle to generations, to society and and societal evils. Fifty years ago, the civil rights movement, in a sense, we might say, exercised a demon of racism, so to speak. Martin Luther King's nonviolent movement shaped our land powerfully. It was explosive. It was effective. And we patted ourselves on the back as that demon went out the door. But I am uh, no historian, but with a simple look at those decades, the Christian can recognize that in the 1960s and the 1970s, some new evils crept in, did they not? We saw the sexual revolution, the swift disintegration of marriage, the drug culture rising up, Roe versus Wade, the death of millions of unborn. And, and here we are in 2015, finding that night after night, the lead stories on the news concern what? Race, matters of racial tension, prejudice, these things in our land. We have heard about Ferguson and Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and SAE, and we realize this demon is very much alive and active, and his friends are here too. So that's why I I take the opportunity, because I think we are at a, a point societally and culturally where this needs to be addressed and is in need of pastoral attention, drawing from the Word of God. If you listen, you realize this is a raw issue. It's a true pastoral issue in some contexts more than others, but I think it touches all of us in some way. I read from a PCA pastor, Mike Higgins in St. Louis, who happens to be black, and he described how when this thing hit me, he said, in Ferguson, all the raw emotions of being black in America just found me. I try hard for them not to find me, but they just do. And, uh, you know, similarly, just from the angle of, of listening, a contributor to the Desiring God blog, John Piper's uh, website, if you're familiar with that, this contributor who happens to be black, started a recent post with this. Once in the small college town where I live, police pulled my car over four times in one day. They all acted as if they were random stops, but of course they weren't. So I I just lay this out to set the context. It reflects uh, an issue that is very real in our times and is an issue that is fundamentally a spiritual one, one that goes deep to the heart of man. It's also a universal issue, right? This is not just in our day and our time. You find these issues in South Africa. These issues are found in Rwanda between Hutu and Tutsi. Problems surfacing in Bosnia. We think back to the 90s and the ethnic cleansing. These are issues that are common to man in his diversities. Issues that trace their lineage back to the Tower of Babel and that shattering of the unity of humanity and even back further to Eden and the fall. 
It's a complex issue. And I, I don't want you to think that this message tonight is going to say everything. Uh, but we are not left in the dark. And the scriptures address this issue unlike any of the secular pundits do. God authoritatively speaks to the problems of the human condition at the root. And that is the difference. And in Luke 4, our text tonight, after that lengthy introduction, we find one such passage that I believe addresses it. One more note, uh, John Piper's book, Bloodlines, was very helpful to me in, in approaching this topic. I don't know if some of you have perhaps read that, um, but it was helpful for me and helpful in understanding this particular passage. So looking at this passage, Luke has us at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We find him in the town of Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And we note that he is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which was his custom. Now a little um, geographical note, the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee sits on the eastern face of a mountain. And I, I read in the commentaries that there is a perpendicular wall of rock there from 40 to 50 feet high. Uh, in the town, just on the outskirts. The account begins with Jesus preaching in the synagogue. And it concludes with violence. The assembly transforms from this friendly, polite, Sunday morning crowd of churchgoers into a bloodthirsty mob trying to throw Jesus off the cliff. They become murderous. I want you to see why. Let's let's take a close look at Jesus' sermon. It's a three-point sermon. And, and we will draw uh, two implications from it. So let's look at a sermon. Point one is this. He himself fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. He reads the scroll standing up as was his custom. And when he, sit, when he finishes, he sits down to preach. Now he was known already as a powerful preacher. And news of that Preaching and teaching must have already reached them at Nazareth, Nazareth because when he's finished reading and he sits down, verse 20 says, if you look there, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And verse 14 affirms that the report of his powerful teaching had gone all around. Okay, so they, they know who's coming. They are anticipating what he's going to say. His teaching had been unlike the scribes. He taught as one with authority. He did not quote this rabbi and quote that rabbi and tour around with fanciful ideas and petty disagreements on traditions of man. No, by open statement of the truth, he commended himself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, as the Apostle Paul wrote. Consciences were pierced as he preached. Hearts burned. A sense of God's presence was felt. He spoke in the power of the Spirit unlike any man the world had ever seen or ever will see. And so, the report had gone out, and there is an electric sense of expectation. And this home crowd, this people who knew Jesus as a boy, they're eager to hear their hometown hero, right? Their, their rising star, uh, the great orator, this ra- rising rabbi from such an unlikely place as Nazareth. Well, Jesus opens his sermon with this surprising word, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Literally, the Greek, it is fulfilled in your ears. As these words are going forth from his mouth and landing in the ears of the hearers, 
the prophecy is being fulfilled. The prophecy of Isaiah. Look at what Isaiah said in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Just previous to this, chapter 3, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. We read there, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus was the anointed one of God. He had been given the Spirit. He was marked as no ordinary rabbi. And by saying, This scripture is fulfilled, he's saying, I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the long-awaited Christ. I have come, and my preaching fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. And what was he anointed to do? Verse 18. He was anointed to proclaim the good news. Proclamation. So, therefore, he is teaching. He is doing what the Messiah does. Now, that's probably already more than what the crowd bargained for that morning. Right? Uh, that was a shocking claim. And I don't, I don't think it sank in in its entirety. I don't think it could have. But they would have certainly understood that this man was very different, not only in his style and his method and his power, but in his message, in his content, in his claims. Nobody made claims like this in the synagogue. Notice how they respond to this point one. Verse 22. And all spoke... Well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? They're amazed. You can hear the hushed murmurs as he preaches. And we don't have the whole sermon that he preached, but I imagine that as he expounds on Isaiah being fulfilled here and now in me, Jesus, they're impressed. So, point one of the sermon is he fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the Christ. And remarkably, that radical claim is okay with them. Uh, But Jesus has a point two and a point three here coming. Point two is this, you will reject me. Jesus says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. This is verse 23. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. He's prophesying what there? The cross. He's prophesying the mocking words that would be thrown at him. Perhaps literally by some of these people, if not in, the, in, the, in spirit, with those crowds crucifying him there on Calvary. You will mock me. And we think of those other words of mocking. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Right? Jesus is prophesying these things. And he says they will ask for miracles. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. It's not the request of faith. This is like the Pharisees, demanding a sign, demanding proof, because they refuse to acknowledge the truth of Jesus Christ. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, Jesus said. Now you can imagine the crowd there in that synagogue beginning to scratch their heads and be a bit more perplexed at this point, maybe not fully grasping what he is saying, but realizing that they should be offended at this point. He is saying, you will reject me. He knows their hearts. He knows who is before him. And then he comes to his third point. And to make this point, Jesus draws two stories from Israel's history. 
You can read them in your Bible. We've just been working through this at Sojourner, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. The first is 1 Kings 17. Israel has abandoned the worship of God in 1 Kings 17. The nation has become this cesspool of idolatry and immorality. And this rough man in camel skin and a leather belt is raised up from the wilderness by God to be his prophet. It's Elijah. You know the story of Elijah. And he declares a drought upon the land. Elijah goes then during the drought to a poor non-Jewish widow. And that's key. A Gentile widow in the city of Sidon. Her food supplies have nearly run out. She has accepted that she is going to die in the drought. But Elijah's coming to her brings miraculous provision. And most importantly of all, the woman comes to know the true God by the arrival of the prophet. Well, then Jesus references a second account a few chapters later in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 5, same context. A few years down the road, Naaman, now a Syrian commander of the army. That's Israel's enemy. They are at war, and there is no love lost between them. Naaman, the commander, becomes a leper, which is a death sentence. However, Naaman receives healing of his leprosy by the prophet Elisha. And more than that, he too becomes a worshiper of the living and true God. And all the while... Israel continues to languish in sin and idolatry and spiral down toward judgment. Jesus' point was simple. It was this. Gentiles will receive my grace while many of Israel will be passed over. And when he lands that third point, the reaction is explosive. It absolutely explodes upon them. They want him dead. And don't miss this key fact. It's not just the rebuke of their hardness that angers them. It's the Gentile over Jew feature of what Jesus is saying that infuriates them. You know, if you, if you doubt this interpretation or if you wonder if it's really there, you can see the same exact occurrence in Acts twenty two twenty one. That could have been my text tonight. It's Paul addressing a crowd of Jews, and a a hush has fallen over them. They've they've accosted him. He has been arrested by the Romans, but he addresses the crowd of Jews, and they are listening intently in this hush, and he tells them of his former life in Judaism, and they listen, and he tells them of his supernatural encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus is alive, and he appeared to me, and they listen. And they are intent. He tells them of his blindness by the radiant glory of Jesus and his supernatural healing by Ananias. And they listen to this. And the hush continues. And then he tells them that Jesus said that the Jews will not accept your testimony about me. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And when he says that, The crowd raises their voices. They cry out, away with such a man from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. They roar with anger. They fling dust in the air. They tear their clothing and and throw it. And the only reason that Paul lives is because he's protected by the Roman soldiers and is taken away. You can't miss the deep ethnic feature to this. 
And as I studied this, I had images in my mind that I saw recently in the movie Selma. One of the key moments in the civil rights movement, mob beatings, racist brutality, murders, bombings of a Birmingham church which killed four little girls. And there's this underlying thread of commonality here. This violence, what is it tied into? Throwing Jesus, seeking to throw him off the cliff. This anger erupting at Paul. It's this root sin, this ethnocentricity, this racial supremacy. Why did, why did Jesus do it? Why did he bring up this third point? This was clearly premeditated confrontation. He knew the response he would get. He knows the hometown crowd. He knows these folks that he, he lived with and grew up with. Why push this button? Right? He's, not, he's, not trying to, he's not trying to win a civil rights movement. He's trying, not trying to abolish Jim Crow laws or anything like that. Why did he do this? Well, he was preaching Isaiah 61. And hear this. Isaiah spoke not only of the Messiah and the identity of the Messiah, but also of the ones who would benefit from the Messiah. Look at verses 18 and 19 in your passage. Notice the key words describing the people who will benefit. He called them the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Who are they? Who are the poor? What captives? What blind? What oppressed? Who is Isaiah talking about? This is vital because Christ will be of no benefit to you unless you are among these people. Right? These are the ones coming under the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is not your Jesus unless you fit in this category, according to the prophet Isaiah, even if you grew up with Jesus in his very own hometown. Jesus exposed on this day, in this synagogue, in no unclear terms who these are not. And it is not those who sit before him in proud, self-exaltant, self-secure Racial arrogance. The poor are those who know and realize their debt of sin. You must be the captives. You must know your slavery to sin's bondage. You must be the blind crying out for the eye-opening light of Christ. You must be the oppressed. You feel the chains of the kingdom of darkness upon you. And if you feel yourself as intrinsically superior, you have denied the radical depths of your own sin. And here we are at the root level, you see. Claiming racial superiority is a symptom of the rejection of the doctrine of the soul-ruining depravity of mankind. That's what's at the heart of it. You have failed to see, if you are in this category, one who is there has failed to see that before the throne of the holy God, no man stands above another. It is level ground before that holy throne of the living God and creator of all mankind. Ethnocentricity is incompatible with being in Christ's kingdom because it is a denial of one's own need. It's fundamentally at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You deceive yourself if you say, I know God and yet I am superior, I am better than these. You know, when you hear about evils in our world from many different directions and however you particularly view them, 
These things on the news we see night after night. You may be right to say, you certainly are right to say, in fact, wrongs are being done by this or that group. However, the thought that must accompany that, whether you are white or black or Asian or Hispanic or whatever, is this, that apart from the mercy of Jesus Christ, I am capable of all the same and worse. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If in your heart of hearts you do not, if at the center of who you are, you are elevated in pride and take security in your flesh, your lineage, your people, the right people, you are among the enemies of the Messiah. You know, what Jesus did not read from Isaiah is just as important as what he did read. The very next line of Isaiah where Jesus stopped is that the Messiah will proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. The proud and arrogant of heart will be cut down. And such were the ones he identified that day in his hometown. But Jesus pressed this button because this sin was the blinding idolatry among the blinding idolatries of that day. The Jews were not bowing down to idols of gold and silver, no. Like in Elijah's day, they were bowing down to their bloodline. They were sons of Abraham. They were the good old boys. Why was Abraham blessed by God, though? Why was he blessed by God? So that in his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And the fact that men had taken their privileged position and all that they had as Jews and perverted it to be a prop for their arrogance was utterly against the plan of God. These Jews termed non-Jews Gentile dogs. They scorned Gentile immorality, and all the while, their self-assured pride was far more damning. Racial supremacy like this is a denial of one's need for grace then and now. Ethnocentricity is at its heart pride and denial of what God says about your condition in sin. Well, the second implication of of Jesus' sermon is, is this. Christ's kingdom is the end of racial supremacy. And I love how this passage ends so simply and profoundly. The mob drives Jesus to the cliff. They're filled with wrath. Right? They, they have a, an ending in view here that they want to see happen. They want to see him bloodied at the bottom of this cliff. No more to trouble them. And you cannot miss the fact that Jesus allows this He allows it all the way out of the synagogue, all the way to the edge of the town, all the way to the edge of that cliff, as if to expose the murderous darkness of this pride. He exposes the bloodiness, the corruption of this self-righteousness and ethnic superiority. And then at the very brow of the hill, it is enough. His work is finished. In Nazareth, the darkness is exposed. He passes through their midst. No more explanation is given as to how he does this. It's not needed. His majesty and authority are on display, however this happens. This mob has no power over him. And he leaves them. He leaves them to think about the murder they almost committed. Jesus Christ is the king of glory. 
He has come by prophecy. He has come by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. No man will stand against his purposes. He will die only at his own determination. And when he does die in weakness, he will take up his life in power again. With the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is at hand. I think of those words that Martin Luther King Jr. quoted on the steps of the Montgomery Courthouse. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Dr. King grasped something of that kingdom. He grasped that Christ's kingdom is a prevailing kingdom. It will triumph over this demon sin and all sin soon and very soon. It cannot fail. And in that triumph of the kingdom is the death of human pride. It is the end of racial supremacy. And so, Covenant Church in Lakeland, let me give you one word of exhortation here. Place yourself in that synagogue on that day. Because truly, as God's word is preached, you are before the Lord Jesus Christ every time his word is preached and explained in your hearing. How do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond rightly to the living Lord? What's the proper heart in view of fierce words here? Is it not to say, oh Jesus, pass me not by. Oh Savior, oh King of righteousness and anointed Messiah, look upon me in mercy. I bow myself prostrate before you in the dust and plead your forgiveness. Is it not to recognize that seeds of pride, maybe not this particular species for you, I don't know, but surely very closely related species have blossomed in each of our lives and each of our hearts. And do we not know Apart from his mercy, we are those who will be under his sword, the day of the vengeance of the Lord. Let your response be before the king of glory. Oh, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And as you look around at a world around you in all sorts of conflict, bring yourself low. Bring yourself low and see yourself as exalted above no man. But bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and the holiness of God. If there is someone here who is not a professing believer, has never put your faith in Jesus Christ and turned from sin in repentance, he will receive you if you cast yourself on his mercy. What, what grace he has. I wonder if any in that synagogue on that day recognized, perhaps later in life, later in Jesus' ministry, perhaps years later, that his coming on that day was a message of mercy, was a, was a call, a, a, a dire warning, and yet a warning while there was yet time. He is the King of grace. He is the Messiah to all who can see that they are the poor in need of his salvation. Let us bring ourselves low. Humility. Humility will make us gentle. Take the log out of our own 
eyes. Humility is toxic to racism. It's lethal to ethnocentricity. We will not banish the evil of racism from the world until Christ returns and all the kingdoms of this world are brought under his sway. But let us banish it from our hearts and from our churches. And perhaps the influence will be significant upon our land. Racism cannot exist in the soul that is prostrate before the King of glory. Let me pray. O God of grace and God of holy judgment, we stand before you only in the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh God, we come before you and bow our hearts and plead with you that you might have mercy upon our churches and might have mercy upon our land. And God, that you might have mercy upon our hearts. Father, I pray that all the idols underfoot be trod. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Bring low our idols of self and pride, and may we there at your feet find grace. God, teach us, lead us in your ways. We pray that you would deal with all of our sins at the root and help us to understand these things and walk in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.